Well, great to have all of you here today, New City Church, for worship uh, on campus and online. We're really, really glad that you're here. We are actually in part six of our first installment through the book of Acts. Time flies when you're having fun. If you've missed any of the sermons so far in our series, Witness, would encourage you to go back and listen on our website or wherever you get your podcast. And our text today is going to be in Acts chapter 4. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to encourage you to turn with me or uh, turn on your phones if you have it there to Acts chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me just take a step back because we're going to run into a pattern, specifically as we get into chapter 4, that we see all throughout the book of Acts. I'm going to call it the Acts pattern, really creative. The Acts pattern, we're going to see it happen over and over and over again. And that is, first, that God raises up leaders to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. This is the first part of the pattern that we see of God building his church. He raises up leaders to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. And then uh, listeners are converted and added to the church. People who hear the gospel, who see the gospel demonstrated, are gloriously saved and added to the number of the church. And then thirdly, opposition arises. So just like leaders arise, people just like us to give witness, opposition arises. The enemy is still alive and well in this world. And he is going to come against anything that is a movement of God or proclaiming the name of Jesus. So opposition arises. And then fourthly, the pattern that we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts repeated over and over and over again is that God and God alone rescues. God rescues. He rescues his said leaders or he protects otherwise his church. And by the way, by the way, this is the same pattern that's being repeated today, 2,000 years later, as God continues to build his church. He raises up people just like us to proclaim and demonstrate his gospel. Listeners and viewers of that gospel are converted and added to the church. Opposition arises from the enemy against it, and God rescues and continues his gospel work in this world. So last week, we looked in chapter 3 at this incredible demonstration of the gospel, the first healing in the book of Acts. And then right on the heels of that demonstration is what? You guys remember? Proclamation. Demonstration leads to proclamation. So right after this man is healed, this incredible proclamation takes place at the end of chapter 3. This is Peter's second sermon, and both of the first two sermons occur in the temple courts. So let's kind of join in to that sermon from last week that Peter's preaching at the end of chapter 3. So if you're in chapter 4, just go back one verse, and let's look at Acts chapter 3, specifically verse 26, because really the entire sermon, Peter's second sermon here, this proclamation, can be encapsulated in this one verse, Acts chapter 3, verse 26. Let me read it to you. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. If we wanted to summarize the gospel, we could summarize it in this one verse, Acts chapter 3, verse 26. God raised up his servant. Who is his servant? Jesus. God raised up Jesus and sent him to you. Now the listeners that day in the temple courts were Jews. Jesus said the gospel goes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So the gospel of Jesus comes to the Jew first, to you first, to do what? To bless you. The gospel is meant to bless you. The gospel is what God is for. It's a demonstration of what God is for. And what is God for the most? People. 
God is for people, for you, for me, for every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. The gospel is for us. It, meant to, it was meant to come and bless us and calls every one of us to turn from our wickedness, our own sin, our own pride. That's what the gospel is meant to do. And here's the incredible thing about this, okay? Al Mohler points this out about this particular passage, Acts chapter 3, verse 26, in this setting. The same group of people that are listening that day were a part of the same group of people that many days before had cried out and called out for the blood of Jesus, and now it is the very same blood of Jesus that's going to cover their sins. It's the very same blood that is offered to each of them, and guess what? It's offered to us too. The very same people, because all of us were in rebellion against God, the very same people that were rebelling against God are the very same people that are now graciously offered his righteousness and love through his shed blood. So Peter's second sermon, right, Acts chapter 3, all of this shows us that there's two possible responses to the gospel. And by the way, we're going to see both vividly on display as we get into chapter 4 today. But as Peter preaches and proclaims the gospel of Jesus, we see two possible responses. And it's the same two responses today. Two possible responses. The first one is to repent. To repent, to, to turn. That's the word. And we saw it in Acts 3, verse 26. For you to turn from your wickedness. To turn you from yourself and your pride and to turn you towards God's righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus. That's what God desires for each and every one of you today. You say today, Chris, what's God's will for my life? First and foremost, God's will for your life is to accept him by grace through faith, to have a personal and living relationship with God. And that happens through Jesus. That's the first thing that God wants for every person. And it's the first response that we can possibly have to the offering of the gospel is to repent, to turn from self and to turn towards God by grace through faith in Jesus. But here's the second option. I said there were two. The first is repentance. That's what God desires for every one of us. But the second option is rejection. Rejection. And we'll, we'll, again, we're going to see that on display. And unfortunately, that still happens today. People stiff-arming God, rejecting God, and therefore being left to dis be destroyed by God's wrath towards sin. And because we're all carriers of sin, God can't turn away his wrath upon us because we don't have the blood of Jesus covering us. So the second option of the gospel is to reject him over and over and over again. There's only two options to the gospel. To repent, to turn from ourselves and turn towards God, or to continue to reject. For Christians, right? Christians are those people, right? Christians are people who have heard the gospel and responded through what? Repentance. They've turned from them, this, themselves and turned towards God. And now by God's grace, they're striving to bring that same gospel message through their witness to other people. The way we say it here at New City is to bring gospel renewal to our city and to the world. So chapter 3 finishes with a, a bit of a cliffhanger. There's several cliffhangers in the book of Acts, and this is one of them. Because we're not sure how the audience that's listening to Peter's second sermon here in Acts chapter 3, we're not sure how they respond when the chapter ends. 
And as we pick up in chapter four, we're going to see again, both possible responses to the gospel, rejection and repentance. And chapter four, our text today also begins uh, the persecution of the church. It's, a, it's the beginning of opposition against the message of Jesus and his carriers of that message, his church. So let's read it together today. Acts chapter four, and I'm just going to cover the first 22 verses. That's all. You guys ready? Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, who's speaking? Peter and John. As they're speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread it no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man whom, on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. May God bless the reading of his word to each of you today. What an incredible text. Let's do some context work. Who are these people? All these groups of people that are listed here. And what what exactly is going on here in these first 22 verses in chapter 4? We know that Peter and John were speaking in the temple courts right after this powerful demonstration in Acts chapter 3. And then what we read here in in 4 is that the religious group took notice. The religious institution took notice. And they come on the scene and they begin to speak against them. 
You know, here's who the, uh, the, all the different people that are mentioned here. Here's, here's kind of the who of the context. And we find it in verses 1, 5, and 6 of Acts chapter, chapter 4 here. Uh, uh, Luke mentions the priest. We'll talk about them in just a second. The captain of the temple guard. The Sadducees, their rulers, elders, scribes, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. And then this summary statement. And all who were of the high priestly Family. In other words, it's a party. This is a party of the religious institution, and everyone is now on the scene. The captain of the temple guard, specifically under kind of the who, understanding the context of, of who's on the scene here, was the commanding officer of the temple police force. That's right. The temple had its own police force. So maybe one day in New City, we can think about having our own police force. The temple had their own police force. Just kidding. He was second in command of the high priest. We're, I know we're still getting to know each other. I'm kidding. Uh, he was uh, second in command of the high priest. And the temple force was made up of Levites, um, this, this um, category of, of priests. And the captain of the temple guard was always a high-ranking Sadducee. And that's another group that's mentioned here. The Sadducees were a group of priests, and they were, they were actually the aristocracy of the, the priestly order. They were the, the high class, the first class, and they were the majority of the priest, okay? And so always the high priest was made up of a Sadducee of that group, uh, of, of those um, aristocracy. And so... Uh, uh, Annas is mentioned here. He's actually not the high priest at the time, but you carried the title high priest for life. So he's mentioned here by Luke as the high priest. Caiaphas is actually the acting high priest. And then Alexander would come after him as the high priest. And what's really important to note, if I lost you there for a second, what's really important to note about all of these really important people is that all of these folks comprise the council that was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was basically the Supreme Court of Israel. You, you, you may have re- remembered that name from the gospel narratives and the same group that Jesus stood before. It consisted of the high priest, which was Caiaphas in this time, but also 70 other priests. So 71 men uh, comprised the Sanhedrin. This is a very important group of people. And this is the people that are on the scene by way of context that are confronting Peter and John now. And Luke tells us in verse 2, this is one of my favorite expressions that Luke Luke uses throughout the book of Acts. Luke tells us in verse 2 that this whole group of important people, the who's who, the aristocracy, all the religious people were greatly annoyed. (laughs) Just imagining Luke writing this out for us. And when he gets to this scene, as he tries to describe what's happening, he comes to that and he's thinking, how can I say this? They were, and I'm sure he cleans it up a little bit for us, greatly annoyed. So with your kids this week, you can turn to them, you can quote the Bible, and you can say, kids, I'm greatly annoyed with you. Or that person in your office pool that picked all the cute mascots in the bracket and they're winning right now, you can say, that greatly annoys me because I studied and I'm in last place. The Sanhedrin normally held its meetings in the morning. So the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, they normally held all their meetings in the morning. And we know from chapter 3 that Peter and John went up to the temple um, at the evening prayers, which was about 3 p.m. So they're arrested in the evening and they're held overnight because the Sanhedrin meets in the morning. So they're held overnight. This would be the first of four times in the book of Acts that Jesus's followers will stand before this group of people, the 
Sanhedrin. This one, then Peter and the apostles in chapter 5, then Stephen in chapter 6, then the apostle Paul in chapter 22. And we'll cover most of those together in our series. Just to get a sense of, we looked at kind of who all these people are, what's going on, just to get a sense of that. Let me quote from one commentator as he describes this scene that we're reading about in Acts chapter 4. This is what he says. When we read the speech of Peter, we must remember to whom it was spoken. And when we do remember that it comes before, his speech comes before one of the world's greatest groups of people, and it becomes one of the greatest demonstrations thereof of courage. In the context, what was spoken was to an audience of the wealthiest, most intellectual, and most powerful group of people in the land. And yet Peter, the Galilean fisherman, stands before them as their judge rather than their victim. But further, this was the very court which had condemned Jesus to death. Peter knew it, and he knew that at this moment he was taking his life into his own hands. But ultimately he knew that his life was in God's hands. And come what may, Peter would not deny Jesus again. Friends, we serve a God of second chances. Not many days before this incredible scene here in chapter 4, Peter was publicly denying the name of Jesus and that he ever knew him. And now he stands before the Supreme Court of Israel, the very group of people that condemned Jesus to death and boldly proclaiming Jesus. Let me say this, and everyone listen. Your mistake yesterday in God's hands, can become your ministry today. Your mistakes yesterday in God's hands can become your ministry today. I think there's something incredible that happened in Peter's heart at the remorse of of his denial and the, the acceptance of Jesus, the love of Jesus that pulled him back in. There's something that happened in Peter that was transformed And the mistake that he made yesterday became his ministry today. And the same can happen for you. The mistakes of your yesterday, put in the gracious and loving hands of God, can transform you and give you a ministry today. And the the passage also reminds us, again, these two responses to the gospel, that not everyone, right, not everyone was rejecting the message Look at verse 4, again, just by way of context of what's happening here. Luke says that, again, not everyone was greatly annoyed. In fact, many, many people responded to the gospel, not with rejection, but with repentance. There's two options. So that now the church numbers 5,000 plus men. Now, this doesn't include women and children. So it's safe to say that right here in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that the local church now numbers 10,000 plus people. In just three short chapters, they've gone from 120 huddled and scared in the upper room to 10,000 plus just in Jerusalem. And what's interesting, you'll notice, is that this is the last specific number that's described to the church by Luke in the book of Acts. From this time forward, the church grew so fast and so far that it was impossible to keep count. Luke does, however, mention, and we'll get to some of these, that the church continues to grow. He mentions it in Acts chapter 5, 6, 9, 12, 16, 19, and 28. The church was growing. And that's the context for our scene today. 
Peter and John being put in front of the Sanhedrin, this Supreme Court of Israel being questioned, the opposition arising to the leaders of the church rising up to proclaim Jesus. And as they're sitting in their midst, as Peter and John are in their midst, this is the question that they ask them. And I think it is the question. Let me read it to you, verse 7. When they set them in their midst, they inquired, here it is, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, what is this? Healing the man in Acts chapter 3 was evident for everyone to see. And they're asking them now the question, by what power in whose name did you do this? Now, if you've ever studied for a test, which I know many of you have, there's questions that you just hope that your teacher or professor will put on the test. I hope they ask me this. If you've ever stood in the batter's box as a softball player or a baseball player, you look at the pitcher and you think, I hope they throw me this pitch. I hope they throw me this pitch because I'm ready to hit it out of the park. And here it comes. Here comes the question, a meatball right down the middle to Peter and John. By whose name and what power did you do this? The door is opened with this incredible question. And what we see, even in the midst of the question, just the, the content of it is that this system of power, if you will, the Sanhedrin, the religious institution that operated off of authority and power is being challenged. And now they're challenging back with a question about authority and power. When systems of power in society get challenged, they're going to question and challenge back by asking whose authority or whose power are you operating under? Because that's what they operate by, is power and authority. That's all they know. And their system, their religious institution is being threatened. It's being challenged. And they want to know, by what authority, by what name are you doing this? By what power? And don't you just know that Peter and John flash back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8? The theme verse for the entire book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember it? Jesus is ascending and it says, you will receive power. You're going to receive power. Dunamis is the Greek word. It's from where we get our English word dynamite. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. This question about authority and power takes Peter and John all the way back to the authority and power that they've now been given through the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? The door has been opened by this question, and now, by God's grace, Peter and John have to step through the door. And guess what? The same is true for each of us, New City. The door is opened every single day for us in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, in our families, wherever we go. And by God's power and grace, we have to then step through those opportunities to proclaim Jesus and to demonstrate him. The Bible says here in verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter answers. And boy, what an answer. He says, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known. And we could summarize all of our gospel witness in those words, let it be known. Let it be known who Jesus is. Let it be known what Jesus has done and what he offers for you. Let it be known, Peter says, to all of you and to all the people of Israel, because, because God is for all of us. All means all, and that's all, all means. The gospel is for all of us. So let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ, there's something about that name. 
the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Think about that boldness and that statement. You killed him, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. And then Peter goes on, that would have been enough. He keeps going and he quotes Psalm 118, 22. Go look at, at it for yourself. He quotes a Psalm here, Psalm 118, 22, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. What does that mean? It means that the, the leaders, the religious institution has rejected the very stone that God gave to them. And now God in his sovereignty has placed Jesus as the cornerstone of what he is now building. That is his church, his people. You rejected Jesus, but now he's become the most important part of what God is doing. That's what Peter is saying. And then we get to verse 12. Oh, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We live in a world, friend, that says you can be anything but certain. You can be anything but certain. You can be anything but exclusive. Try doing a, a news interview and talk about your faith, and as soon as you mention Jesus, we're wrapping up the interview. The world accepts anything except for exclusivity, except for certainty. And yet the very book that you're holding in your hands today was written so that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's what Luke says to Theophilus, that lover of God. And, and I think we got some lovers of God in the house today. Amen. That you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. There is salvation through no one else but Jesus. And in verse 12, we see the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus said it about himself in John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's very exclusive, Jesus. That's very narrow. That's very narrow. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the way to God. Broad is the path of destruction. But Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he's calling each and every one of us to himself. His name is enough. There is no other name. His name is enough. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Christianity of false is of no importance. But if true is of infinite importance, the only thing that Christianity and the message of Jesus cannot be is moderately important. Jesus said it this way to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. I wish you were hot or cold. Warm water I'm going to spit out. Decide. Will you repent and turn from yourself to Jesus or will you continue to reject? But be clear. Be clear. The message of Jesus, the hope of Christ, is an exclusive message. The irreducible minimum of the gospel is this, friends. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And God has sent a Savior to each and every one of us. And his name is Jesus. We don't need self-help 
and we don't need self-esteem. We need salvation. And that's been offered through Christ freely for each and every one of us. The gospel is the most adaptable message on the face of the planet because simply we each need it. Now look at verse 13. After Peter finishes, what an incredible word here. After Peter finishes, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They saw their boldness more than anything else that Peter just said, which he just said a lot, didn't he? An incredible statement that he gives in verses 8 through 12. But more than anything that he said, they saw something in these men. Isn't that great? More than anything that you can say, it's what people will see. God uses our words. Absolutely, God uses words. Absolutely, we should have our words seasoned with salt and grace and truth. God uses words, but more than your words, God will use your life, your actions, the way that you live. And here's the truth. The truth is that many people that you're in, you'll encounter this week will never pick up God's word and read it. You will be the word that they read. Your life will be God's word to them. Until they begin to read God's word on their own, your life and actions will demonstrate his word to them. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, something clicked. Now here's the incredible thing. All of this is incredible. But here's one of the incredible things. John hasn't said anything that's recorded at least. In chapter 3 and 4, Peter's doing all the talking, which is not a surprise. Peter's the one that's speaking. John is standing with him. And we see an incredible truth here that you can have a ministry even when you don't speak words. Just who you are. In chaplain circles, we call it the ministry of presence. That you can walk into a room, that you can be in a meeting, that you can walk down the street, and before you say anything, even if you don't get a chance to say anything, your presence carries Jesus into the room. Your presence brings Jesus into the boardroom. Your presence brings Jesus into that home. It brings it into that office place, into that school, into that hospital. The presence of Jesus goes with you. And these men, the Sanhedrin, they noticed the presence of Christ all over Peter and John. They saw it. You say, Chris, I don't know if I could be that bold in my witness. Aren't we all asking that today? When we read these words, could I, could I be that bold? Could I speak these words? Could I stand there? Could I, could I have this kind of presence? How do you get this kind of boldness? Well, we see it right here in the text, how we get this boldness. How did Peter and John, the ones who denied and, and everybody fell away, how are they now standing in such boldness? You get bold for Jesus by being with Jesus. You get bold for Jesus by being with Jesus. Listen to the text. They perceived that Peter and John were uneducated common men and they're absolutely handing it now to these educated, sophisticated men and the only explanation is that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. If you want to be bold, everybody watch this. If you want to be bold in your witness, you have to be still before God. If you want to be bold, you've got to be with God. You've got to sit with Jesus. You've got to be with him before you can be bold for him. 
And here's the good news for each of us. God desires to use people just like us, common, uneducated people, people who don't have it all together, right? Broken people, ordinary people to do something extraordinary in the name of Christ. And oh yeah, verse 14, there's the man that was healed standing with them. So beyond anything that Peter has said, and even beyond the ministry of their presence and carrying Jesus there, there's the man from chapter 3. <laughs> Don't forget about me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm, I'm found. I was blind, but, but now I see. I was, I was crippled, I was lame, but now I can walk and leap. There's something incredible about proclamation that leads to demonstration, that leads to proclamation, that leads to more demonstration. This man is a walking miracle, and by the way, so are you, Christ follower. You're a walking miracle with a story to tell. And so finally, here's the answer that the council gives and that Peter and John give. They give two distinctive answers to this, this whole proclamation and demonstration that's happening here in front of our eyes in chapter 4. The council, you know, they don't know what to do. There's, there, there's nothing they can say, right, to Peter's words and to this demonstration of this man uh, standing with them, which, by the way, I love that he's still with them, right? He doesn't deny them even when they're arrested. And we're left to inference that the man that was healed in chapter 3 goes to prison with them that night. And spends the night with them. And the Bible says in chapter 3 that he, that he clings to them. He, wants to, he just wants to be with them. And now that, that presence, right? His, that, 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 that healing that happened through him physically is now this incredible demonstration. And the Bible says that they have nothing to say. The Sanhedrin has nothing to say. So they send them away. Verse 15, they send them away and they confer with each other. They huddle up together. The whole institution, all 71 of them, all 71 priests, they're talking together. It's evident to everybody throughout Jerusalem that, that a miracle has happened. We don't have an explanation. So, so here's these sophisticated um, aristocracy, you know, just the highest of high people, educated, all these people. Here's the solution they come up with. You ready? We'll warn them. We'll write them a warning and we'll tell them, don't do this again. We thought we had dealt with this once and now it's happening again. So don't do it again. I want you to pay attention to something like that, to, to, to something here, really important, and, because it's specific to what they tell them not to do, that what they warn them about. Don't speak to anyone anymore in this name, verse 17 says. So they call them together and charge them not to speak or teach at all. In the name of Jesus, there's something about the name. There's something about the name of Jesus. They say, don't do it anymore. Don't speak his name. Don't teach about him. Don't talk about him. And then we get to the answer of Peter and John, which is really the bottom line for the whole passage. And let me read it to you. It's found in verses 19 through 21. Peter and John answer the warning that's given not to speak about the name of Jesus. And they say this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Now listen to this, pay attention to this, verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, don't do this, don't do this, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And may we do the same today, New City.
To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, more than anything else today as a church, more than anything else today, may others recognize that we have been with Jesus. May that be said of each and every one of us. And may our witness be this, that we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard from you, Jesus. You changed our lives. You saved us. You healed us. And we can't help but tell other people what we've seen and heard from you. We can't help but speak the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name. So Jesus, may you be high and lifted up today and this week as we leave this place, as we go into our city, as we go into the world. May your name be high and lifted up and may you draw all people to yourself. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray together. And all God's people said, amen.